Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and with me to discuss what the election of Hamza Youssef to First Minister means for the prospects of Scottish independence and the SNP's rivals is Labour MP Ian Murray, Shadow Scottish Secretary, renowned pollster Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, and the former SNP MP and frontbench spokesperson Stephen Gethins. So I'm going to start with you, Stephen, before we move on to kind of what this means for other parties. You know, what does this really mean for the SNP, the importance of of Hamza Youssef's win for him and, and also for the party more generally? Well, I mean, first of all, and to be fair, Anna Sarwar, the Labour leader, was very generous around this this week. I think it's a significant moment for Scotland to have its first Muslim leader, I think the first Muslim leader in a Western democratic nation. So I think that's that's one moment. It also brings to an end a really unusual period for the SNP, which is its first really significant leadership election. Mm. And I know we've got John Curtis here, so I'm mindful not to talk about polling, but we just went through an election whereby it was impossible to poll because this was a an election with SNP members. Nobody knew how they were going to vote. So it told us quite a lot about the SNP and the changes it's gone through since that surge in membership since 2014. And it's a generational shift. You know, you're seeing Nicola Sturgeon move on, but almost as importantly, you're also seeing John Swinney moved on, who's been a really significant figure in devolved politics. He was also a former MP. But there were very few big decisions that have been made, either Nicola Sturgeon or Alex Salmond's governments, that didn't have an input from John Swinney. So this is quite a big moment and one of the biggest changes we've seen in devolved governance since 2007. Mm. But on that, obviously, you talked about the kind of the difficult sort of period. I suppose, you know, the SNP that I've passed up 20 years has, has been pretty much gone along with what its leadership sort of wanted. It's kept its internal divisions hidden from view if there were any. So it would, I suppose it would have been a surprise if, if Hamza Youssef had, had lost. You know, does it maybe look bad that, that Kate Forbes actually got close, given that the party elite almost, almost uniformly backed Youssef? I don't think it looks bad. I mean, the, th- the thing is that members and this, I've got a little bit of experience of this, but not a, a huge amount. There's something like an SNP member on every street in Scotland, you know, and, and although we know that the numbers went down, it is still the biggest political party far and away in Scotland, I think bigger than the rest combined, and the biggest per capita in the UK by quite some distance. So when you're talking about SNP members, you're not talking about some select small group of people, you're talking about a wide range of of individuals, not all of whom are on Twitter and following the day-to-day machinations, a lot of whom will have actually been informed through the TV debates and in the ways that other voters make up their mind. I think Kate Forbes was an impressive candidate. I think that had something to do to do with it. But also, there's been a little bit of change in the SNP in the sense that because this is the first leadership election that's really gone through, in fact, the last one where we didn't really know the outcome was, I think, when Alex Salmond defeated Margaret Ewing, which I think was in the 1990 yeah. SNP conference. I've seen John John's nodding, which you won't pick up, which is quite some distance back for all of us on this call. So this was a significant moment in Scottish politics. Even if you agree with it or disagree with it, this is a moment of change and a generational shift. And it tells us a little bit about what the, the kind of party the SNP is now. And it, remember, it considers itself as more of a movement in many ways than a traditional political party. Mm. Yeah, we'll come on to that kind of the issue of nationalism and how it's bound up in, I guess, sort of the, the party politics. But but John, just sort of polling-wise, just talk us through sort of how popular or unpopular Yusuf is and amongst, not just amongst the SNP, but amongst the sort of wider Scottish population and, and what you think this means essentially for SNP's prospects uh, at next year's Westminster election and, and potentially in, in Scottish elections in the future as well. I mean, Stephen is right that we had very little polling the SNP members 
But actually, we discovered that SNP members in their evaluations of the two candidates were remarkably similar to the views of SNP voters. The polling of SNP voters had suggested that the two were very close, with when people were being asked to evaluate the two candidates individually, as opposed to saying who, whom they would most prefer as First Minister, with Mr. Yusuf narrowly ahead. But I think one has to say, and I think Stephen somewhat skirted over this, it is remarkable that we have a situation where the vast bulk of elected SNP politicians, both at Westminster and at Edinburgh, come out in favour of one candidate, and that candidate only wins narrowly. Now, we can, we can debate why that happened. I don't necessarily take the view that people were voting for Kate Forbes because they were wanting to endorse her views on gay marriage. I suspect many people were either indifferent to that or, or were voting despite it. But given that the judgment of, of their parliamentary colleagues was supposedly that Mr. Yustov was quite clearly the better of the two candidates, SNP members, many of them, frankly, disagreed with what their parliamentary colleagues were saying. And it may be no more that indeed Ms. Forbes is regarded as the more effective campaigner, question mark, or perhaps is regarded as the more competent politician, question mark, rather than necessarily uh, reflecting uh, socially conservative views amongst the SNP membership. But it is remarkable that even if it's those criteria, that the judgment of parliamentarians and the cues that were offered by parliamentarians were not picked up by a significant section of uh, the SNP membership. And that, you know, it does raise questions about where the uh, SNP goes from here, because we've, we've now ended up with a, with a Scottish government that, in terms of its ministerial lineup, that basically is led by uh, somebody who has the backing of only half of the party membership. Now, we come to the wider public, then Mr. Yusuf's problems uh, become even more manifest. It's a very, very different situation from the one that Nicola Sturgeon inherited. Now, of course, Nicola Sturgeon, first of all, inherited the great advantage that in the wake of the 2014 referendum, pretty much everybody who voted yes were wanting to reaffirm their commitment by independence by swinging in favour of the SNP, and that cost the Labour Party dear. And in the wake of that, Nicola Sturgeon's own evaluations in the November of that year are plus 20. 20% more people satisfied than dissatisfied with her amongst the wider public. You look at the equivalent figures now for Humza Yusuf. Well, here we go, minus 19, minus 12, minus 18. He is not a popular politician amongst the wider Scottish public. Now, I don't necessarily ascribe to the view that that's necessarily disastrous for the SNP, but mm. what is true is that leaders are the vehicle through which, the medium through which primarily voters learn about a party and form their impressions of a party. And that the risk at the moment that Mr. Yusuf faces is that he can, unless he can begin to turn those figures around, he's going to struggle to convince people because people are going to say, hang on, I'm not quite sure about this guy. I'm not quite sure he's up to the job. I'm not sure he's somebody I trust. That's what potentially lies behind these numbers. And unless those perceptions are changed, then Mr. Yusuf will struggle to get a hearing. Now, to come directly to the main point of your question, where are we at at the moment? Well, uh, so far as polling for Westminster is concerned, and we take the polls that were conducted during the course of the leadership election, the SNP are at 40%, the Labour Party are at 30%, 
and the Conservatives are down at uh, 18%. Now, if you take those numbers and compare them with the 2019 election, well, Labour's up, it's up by 11 points. The SNP are down about five. Talk of a collapse in SNP support at the moment, at least, is certainly premature. It slid, it slid to a level that we last saw not that long, actually, before the 2019 general election, in which they eventually got 45%. But what is true is at that level, then you are looking probably, the Labour Party might well be able to pick up 10 seats off the SNP. Now, uh, the SNP might then pick up something off a little bit off the Conservatives, but the Labour Party would begin to pick up non-trivial numbers of seats north of the border and certainly their highest representation since the disaster of 2015. Now, what also you have to appreciate, if that lead narrows a little bit further, then the prospects for Labour improve quite dramatically. But equally, conversely, if the lead just widens a little, if the SNP support just edges back up a bit, the prospects for Labour also begin to fall away in terms of number of seats quite rapidly. So the truth is we're at a tipping point. Mm. The SNP certainly are facing a more significant challenge from Labour than at any point uh, uh, you know, since 2015, not simply a commentary, commentary on the SNP. Much of the rise of the Labour Party in Scotland is frankly to do with one party gate and two, the fallout from the Liz Truss administration, in much the same way that it was being south of the border. And if you actually look at the split of Labour support and the increase in Labour support, according to how people voted in 2014, Labour do have some success in getting the support of yes voters, but it's 15%. It's got 42% support amongst those people who voted no in 2014. And the increase in Labour support over the course of the last 18 months in Scotland has occurred much more markedly amongst unionist no supporters than it has done amongst nationalist yes supporters. So that just indicates that the Labour Party is still not finding that easy to win significant numbers of votes directly from the SNP. Yeah, definitely. Well, well Ian, obviously, Keir Starmer has visited Scotland three times uh, in the last uh, last few weeks. Clearly, Labour feel that the moving away from, from Sturgeon and with Humza user coming in gives you a potential chance to pick up perhaps 10 or maybe even 20 seats. You know, Anna Sawa, your leader in Scotland, suggested that Sturgeon standing down makes it in some ways easier for us. How do you kind of see it? And do you see this as a big opportunity? You've been a bit lonely up there as the only Labour MP in Scotland for the last couple of years. Do you think you're going to get some some colleagues at the next election? I think to put all this in context, and I think what John said is is absolutely right, but the very fact that we're even on the 30th of March 2023, talking about potentially winning 20 seats is a remarkable turnaround. And don't forget, before Anas Sawar became leader of the Scottish Labour Party, we were polling in the low teens in terms of percentage points. So the very fact we're at 30, 31% of the vote is, is quite extraordinary. And John's absolutely right. For every percentage point that we put on now and we take from the SNP and get them into the 30s, the number of seats rises quite considerably and that makes a huge difference across the UK because if we can get to the magic number of of 20 seats the gap that is required between Labour and the Conservatives across the UK goes from 15 points to nine and that's a game changer mathematically to put Keir Starmer into number 10 but it's also a game changer politically because there's no doubt the Conservative culture wars at the next election which is pretty much all they have left politically would have been to have Keir Starmer in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon the way they ran the same election before that is now not going to happen because nobody knows who Hamza Youssef is. He's not got the same national profile. You, you think Starmer in Youssef's pocket is not going to have the same impact as Miliband in Sturgeon's I pocket did? I don't think they'll do it yet. They'll, they'll just not do it because it just won't have the resonance and, and, and nobody will know what it is. So mathematically, 
we're in a, sli- a much more positive position. And politically, we're in a much more positive position because of that as well. But John's also right. People don't come to the Labour Party, the Scottish Labour Party, automatically because of the troubles the SNP are currently in. We have to fight for every vote. It is an opportunity that we have to grasp. And, and everyone realises that in the by-election in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, if it comes to pass, will be a real test off that. But, you know, Stephen and Gethins and his colleagues are putting on a rather brave face of what's happened over the last six weeks. And this isn't just about Nicola Sturgeon standing down and very much to everyone's surprise. This all really started with Ian Blackford being taken out at Westminster as the Westminster group leader. That was rumoured for a long time. It then came to pass. Nicola Sturgeon herself tried to stop it on a number of occasions. And then Nicola Sturgeon's favourite candidate, Alison Thewlis, did not win. In fact, she, she lost by quite a large margin to Stephen Flynn. So this was the catalyst for this. So these deep-seated and deep-rooted problems in the SNP at the moment are going to be very, very difficult for Hamza Youssef to try and bring together, particularly given the closeness of the result. Hamza Youssef was the establishment candidate and broke the establishment during the course of the election campaign. Um, And I think there's a real split now in terms of trying to keep the coalition of the SNP together. Stephen's right, it's a huge coalition and credit to the SNP for not only having built it, but have kept it together for so long. But I think the glue that kept that coalition together was the sheer uh, formidable nature of Salmond and Sturgeon. And now that that those formidable politicians have gone, that coalition could crack pretty quickly. And I think you can start seeing that already with this, the cabinet that's been put together yesterday from, from Hums and Yusuf and otherwise. And there's just a basic political point, and John mentions this in some of the popularity numbers that he read out in terms of Hamza Yusuf's general popularity in the Scottish public. He has failed at every job he's had, and I did challenge Kirsten Oswald, who was the deputy leader of the SNP, on this yesterday to just say, give us one of Hamza Yusuf's achievements in all the departments that he's run, of which there was none forthcoming easily. And the public know that, and I think that's really the big issue here. And the leadership election has shown us one thing. I think the Kate Forbes attack on Hamza Youssef at the start of the TV debates will be something that will haunt this administration now until it leaves. And and that's something that we have to not only exploit, but we have to offer the positive alternative. And that's what Anasawa and Keir Starmer are determined to do. Yeah, Stephen, I just want to bring you back in on this before we move on to the potential by-election. I suppose we talked about how, how long ago it was that we saw an SNP leadership election like this. We, for the first time in a long time, it's sort of SNP on SNP. As I said, a lot of those internal schisms have been kept behind the scenes. They kind of burst out into the public. There's obviously issues with you know stuff around the communications director, Murray Foote, resigning over this sort of alleged cover-up over the party's membership. It does feel as though the kind of nature of the party is starting to sort of crumble a little bit. Do you think that, you know, you haven't been in power for so long in in Scotland, having most of the seats since 2015, do you think that whoever was going to take over would have a difficult situation given the power Sturgeon had as leader? Well, I mean, this is the first time the SNP has been through a significant leadership election. So the, the, the honest answer really is that nobody quite knows yet because Nicola left with very significant approval ratings, yes, amongst SNP voters, but also more widely as well, probably the approval ratings that, that, that Keir Stammer would love to have. But Ian, I'm not an SNP parliamentarian anymore, but I'm sure Ian won't mind me saying that Ian's got a lot more experience of bitter leadership election campaigns than anybody <laughs> in the SNP and, does. And that's, and that's why actually the SNP should have just read the Scottish Labour Party's Wikipedia page and <laughs> all the same mistakes. They could, they could have sorted this out just by asking us rather than making all the mistakes that they made. Well, maybe, maybe we'll consider being more collegiate in the future like that. Mm. It's a good offer to have. But just on a couple of points there, I think yeah. first of all, on the point on Hamza, 
I mean, I can remember a few years ago when Nicola first became leader and there was a lot of talk, could Nicola possibly fill the shoes of Alex Salmond? Was it was that too big a job? And she did, you know, and she went further than that as well. Now, Hamza, any new leader coming in, any new leader of any party, will have to spend the next few weeks and months introducing themselves. Because with the best will in the world, not everybody follows this as closely as maybe the four of us sitting here do. No, of course not. <laughs> Surely not. And, and I know. And I, and I know. Maybe not this particular podcast today. I'm sure it'll be widely listened to. But there'll be, have to be a period of introducing yourself to the wider public and a period of people figuring out who you are, what you stand for. I mean, in fairness, and I, I, I don't make this a point of criticism, but it's, it's something that even Keir Starmer is having to do at the moment, even though he's been leader for longer and people have to get used to who he is as they decide who to vote for at the next general election. That's something that leaders have to do. On the point on the SNP, now, whereas I think Salmond and Sturgeon were formidable campaigners and individuals, People are, and I'm mindful that John Curtis is on this call, so you'll know better than I do, people are overwhelmingly voting along the lines of how they feel about the Constitution. Mm. And that is where, you know, the SNP, although Nicola was popular, formidable campaigner, I can remember chapping doors, and Ian's probably had the same experience as a constituency MP, that people would say, well, I think you've done a good job, but I disagree with you on this issue, so I can't vote for you. Or they might have thought, I don't think you're doing a great job, but I agree with you on this issue, so I'm going to vote for you. So with that schism and the lack of Labour progress to independence voters, then I think the SNP has got a job on its hands to keep that coalition together. I think we can probably all agree with that. It's been a very intellectually successful coalition, and you'll have to stop pro-independence voters going to the Labour Party. So be prepared to hear a lot more about Brexit. Be prepared to hear a lot more about the fact that Labour aren't taking seats off the Tories in Scotland. They're simply taking seats off another party that sits in opposition to them at the moment. Now, Ian will have his comeback on that, and that's entirely legitimate. But over the next 18 months, that argument will be shaped in an SNP headquarters when they get the personnel sort of changes that, that, that need to be made in there. That's the kind of messaging that they'll start to shape. But I suspect you'll hear a lot about a relationship with the EU from the SNP because they'll be looking at areas that make the Labour Party feel uncomfortable. Yeah, Ian, I'll come back to you in a second. I just wanted to just come to you, John, on that issue of kind of the breaking on national—it's quite hard, isn't it, for other parties to peel away nationalist voters away from the SNP? And in a sense, if independence continues to poll well, and I know obviously it's not as been high as it has been, but it's still fairly, fairly high, then the SNP will continue to benefit from that. Do you think in any future election? Yeah, I mean, Stephen is absolutely right. I mean, in a sense, what we're now looking forward to in the next few weeks and months is, as it were, the relative power of what we might call the underlying structure of Scottish politics which is one where effectively you now need to think of Scotland as being much closer to Northern Ireland than it is to England, i.e. that the constitutional question has come to dominate. If you look at what happened in the Holyrood election of two years ago, we had between 85 and 90% of those people who are currently in favour of yes voting for the SNP and less than 10% of those who are opposed to independence voting for the SNP. This is relatively new. Um, when the SNP won its overall majority back in 2011, about 40% of people who were opposed to independence at that stage were voting for the SNP. So we're now in a much more polarised situation in Scotland. So the question is, to what extent will the commitment to independence still keep yes voters loyal to the SNP against the backdrop of perhaps somebody who they regard less favourably as a leader 
and somebody who perhaps is more vulnerable on the issue of competence than Nicola Sturgeon was. I mean, for all the attempts of the opposition to try to get voters to focus on the record of the Scottish government rather than the constitutional question, hitherto at least, they've not managed to get a great deal of purchase on that. And in the sense, the truth is we don't know how this is going to play out. But the, the, the structure there, uh, if voters still continue to decide it's the constitutional question that matters, then it will be much more difficult uh, for Labour to make uh, further progress. As I said earlier, most of Labour's progress has been made amongst no supporters uh, rather than yes supporters. So you know this is the, the, the crucial structure. And Brexit is, is crucial to this because, again, there's been a fundamental change in Scotland since 2014. Back in 2014, when Ian and Stephen and everybody else were arguing about whether or not an independent Scotland could be a continuing member of the European Union, they were completely wasting their time. There was no relationship between people's attitudes towards the European Union and whether they voted uh, yes or no. Now, those people who are in favour of being uh, in favour of being inside the European Union are three times more likely than those who are opposed to say they're in favour of independence. And if you look at the structure of Labour's vote in Scotland, whereas south of the border, Labour Party gets about 55% of the vote of Remain voters and only about a third of the vote of Leave voters, in Scotland, the gap between those two groups is much narrower. In other words, Labour in Scotland are finding it much more difficult to get the support of Remain voters, many of whom are in favour of independence, than they are south of the border. Ian, do you want to come in on that? Well, I mean, what Stephen has just said is essentially, of course, the SNP will turn their guns on Labour because we're breathing down their necks. And the one challenge I would give to John Curtis on some of these these national polling figures is we have won by-election seats and actual votes from the SNP in the recent times, Glasgow Lynn by-election, Broxburn, the Aberdeen North and Gordon constituency just last month. So in actual ballot boxes, we are winning seats with big swings from the SNP, although we have taken some votes, the majority of our polling votes from no voters. However, that is, uh, it'd be interesting to get John's view on that, that's slightly tempered by the fact that the SNP's vote, I think, has been slightly helped by the fact that they're taking Conservative voters in Conservative held seats, because if the SNP are going to win those six Conservative seats, they've got to get Conservative voters across. And I think that's slightly impacted their vote in terms of holding up a bit more than the the actuality across the central belt, which is where the the Labour vote is. But in terms of the other big issues around this, people will go to the polls, I think, for three reasons come the next general election. The top one, particularly for soft SNP and soft yes voters is, do they want to get rid of this Conservative government? And the overwhelming evidence is yes. And in fact, we've seen that in many of the Vox Pops that may, all the major broadcasters have been doing over the last few days in terms of the the new First Minister, that they want rid of this Conservative government. The, the second thing is that independence is now much further away. And Hamza Yusuf himself has said it's further away, maybe five to ten years. So maybe the voters will still go into the... Despite the fact that he he tried to get a Section 30 through straight away as soon as he took over. And I I think that was probably a tactical error in that sense, because he's essentially just scored a line through the only mechanism to get another independence referendum. So in that sense, I've always been off the view that people still go into the polling booths in Scotland to a greater or lesser extent based on their views of the constitution. That is still probably true in polling, but whether that's true by the next general election, who knows? Mm. The third thing is offering the public what they are saying is their priorities 
and their top priorities at the moment in terms of health, education, jobs, the economy, the environment, are all things that Hamza Yusuf has actually got a pretty poor track record on at this moment in time. So the framing of the next general election will be crucially important. As what John said at the very start of his first contribution, Scottish seats could get Labour across the line, and that would be very, very important in terms of what that means at the next general election. Brexit will be a debate, of course, at the next general election, and the SNP will make it a debate in Scotland. However, they that opens up a big difficulty for the SNP as well, because they will have to explain to the Scottish people the route back to the European Union for an independent Scotland, and that discussion is not easy. And it's certainly not easy when the proposition that Nicola Sturgeon presented before she left office um, was completely contradictory to the treaty arrangements that would require you to be a succession country. So if it opens up that debate, we then mm. get back into talking about the constitution. And that's something I think the SNP, if I was advising them, would be going to the next general election, not talking about the constitution. Yeah. I think we'd be forced down that route. Well, I mean, ahead of all of that, you've, you know, Labour have got an early test of whether they can actually win back these seats. Margaret Ferrier, the MP for Rutherglen and Hamilton West, just this morning after we were recording this, and she was recommended that she be suspended from the House of Commons for 30 days, which could trigger a recall and then a potential by-election. The SNP won that seat in 2015, lost it in 2017, and Ferrier won it back in 2019 before she was had the whip suspended. It's right in that central belt you just talked about. Ian, you know, how important do you think it is, if there is a by-election, you know, how important it is for the Labour to win that seat? Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer. It's, it's the only electoral test between now and the general election in Scotland. Let's clarify all this. The, 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 the chances of winning a recall petition are difficult. Mm. I believe the process would mean that Margaret Ferris still has the opportunity to appeal the sentence, although I'm not yeah. quite sure she'll get the sentence down enough to get it below the 10-day threshold that would prevent a, a, yeah. a recall petition. Yeah, and a, and a recall petition takes six weeks, and a by-election takes six weeks. So we, we're talking the summer if there is a... We're talking, a, we're talking a, the summer. So this, is, the, the, this isn't happening tomorrow, although it could be the case that, that Margaret Ferrier may decide to stand down and call mm. a, a, a by-election, which... As Owen Paterson did when he was recommended to be suspended for 30 days. Yeah, and others have done on the basis that the, the sanction is so large that it, it is just the right thing to do. But that's that's not a decision that any of us can, can make. But yes, I you know, and this will be a test of us talking about the issues nationally, about looking forward to the general election, about Anas's uh, relative popularity against the other party leaders, about the issues that are on the table. And the good thing about UK parliamentary by-elections is it's very, very difficult to talk about the constitution in that. And Stephen's party might find that quite, quite difficult, particularly in this cost of living crisis when people are really struggling uh, on the ground and really struggling with paying their bills and those will be the big issues mm. that will come up at the by-election but I think it's a huge electoral test for all parties actually yeah uh, and everyone will be relishing it as well as dreading it at any <laughs> measure I would have thought well one person who probably will relish it is John Curtis I mean the recent polling there was a, a, an MRP poll by Savanta in December that suggested that actually the SNP might hold that seat but that obviously was to caveat that that was before the incumbent MP was essentially booted out for, for breaking the rules around Covid how do you kind of see the polling around that do you think it's it, Labour should be taking or have to be taking that do you think on, on current polling? I think if the Labour Party are going to be con- begin to convince us that they could possibly win the 20 seats that they've been talking about they have yeah. to win this by-election it's a 10 point majority percentage majority for the SNP over Labour so even if the SNP were to hold their share of the vote in the constituency but Labour were to register the 11-point increase in support 
that they uh, currently are in the opinion polls as compared with 2019, Labour would still pick the seat up. So, you know, it, it, given the current uh, standing of the national polls, leaving aside the MRP uh, variations, Labour will enter this by-election at the moment, at least, as favourites. Now, we have to say, I hate to, hate to remind Ian of this, there are beginning to be signs in the GB-wide polling that Labour's numbers are beginning to co- uh, come down a little. The Labour leader over the Conservatives in the GB-wide polling is not quite what it was. It's now below the 20-point mark. We will wait to see what the more recent polling in Scotland says about this. So, you know, that might make it a wee bit more difficult uh, for Labour in Rother Glen. But, uh, yeah, Labour, if Labour are going to convince anybody that they're going to potentially at least begin to have some at least some serious representation in Scotland, then this is a by-election they should win. Yes, Stephen, just on that, obviously you talked about Hamza Yusuf giving himself an opportunity to sell himself to, to the wider country and sell himself to, to the UK. He's not got a lot of time before there is a potential by-election. You know, what do you think he's got to do to, I guess, step out of Nicola Sturgeon's shadow? And, you know, obviously we saw his 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 cabinet, quite a lot of like loyalists in there, not, not a lot of people who supported Ash Regan or, or Kate Forbes in there. You know, what do you think he's got to do? How important, again, on the opposite side, is it for the SNP to hold on to that seat to suggest that they're not on kind of a downward slope with him taking over? Well, firstly on the seat and then the more general point. On yeah. the seat, I mean, this is number three or four on Labour's target list. So it looks like a must win for them. And that means galvanising, as John's mentioned, the, the Tory vote, that unionist vote. Ian mentioned earlier on, I'm not in politics anymore, Ian is, so maybe things have changed. But I've never met that many SNP Tory switchers. I don't know who Labour is speaking to. I don't know if they're just saying to him, I'm no voting for you, pal. Um, but I've not met that many. I've not met that many SNP Tory switchers. If the Labour Party are polling single digits in constituencies in the north and constituencies in the borders, but they're turning from blue to yellow, then it must be blue voters voting yellow. Otherwise, they wouldn't be changing hands. My experience is that the yellow is not the SNP yellow that they tend to switch about. So you get Lib Dem to Tory switchers in some rural seats, you get Tory Labour switchers. I mean, we know from, I mean, John's just talked about, you know, that Labour needs to go after those Conservative votes and that's driving up some of their support in the polls. So on the more general point, and I'm sure people aren't being that rude to Ian um, when he's speaking to them, but on the <laughs> no, more they general... No, they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure they're, they're very polite in Edinburgh South, they're very polite around Morningside. I'm sure on the the point about Hamza, well, he's got to introduce himself, but then the first minister steps away. And politics is, is, is pretty brutal, although I think Nicola will welcome this, and that people move on, life moves on. We know that, you know, that, 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 that we know, and as Mal- Malcolm Rifkin says, you know, the day after you're not a minister, you sit in the back of the car and it doesn't move. So life moves on. And Hamza will have that space because it is not a space that will be occupied in public life by Nicola Sturgeon or, or, or Alex Salmon. So you have an opportunity. And what you've also seen, I think the cabinet's got a mix of experience and new generation. But there is, and, and, and Ian talked about Stephen Flynn coming, there is that generational shift mm. coming through as well. So there are people like Nicola and Alec who joined the party when it had two or three MPs, and you now have that shift into a generation who have grown up with the Scottish Parliament, who have grown up with the SNP being successful. And I don't think any of us who are on this podcast today know what that means next. And I think how they present themselves how they campaign and how they appeal to the public over the next six months will be 
really interesting and it will make, even though I think it is a must win for Labour, this by-election campaign, if there is a by-election, I can't see it being this side of the summer for the reasons that Ian pointed out in terms of process. Yeah. But by that stage, you're into the autumn in which, which time it becomes a really interesting electoral contest. Uh, Alan, I don't know if, if John can comment on this, but I mean, Stephen said three times now this is a must win for Labour. I think it's also a must win for the SM. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, if Hamza was to go into his first few months in office and lose a by-election, I mean, that would be a really pretty bad story. So, you know, I, I, think, in all, I think all parties will be looking at this by-election and going, we need to do well in this. I think it would, the answer to Ian is I think it would depend on A, how badly the SNP did in losing and B, what is the broader backcloth. What I think is true is that given the narrowness of his victory in the leadership election, that some of those parliamentarians who have backed him will be looking for evidence that he, ha- he is managing to consolidate and to some degree reverse the, the slippage right in SNP support that has occurred in recent weeks. And if there aren't signs of that by the autumn, then there might begin to be a degree of nervousness in the party about whether or not they have made the right choice. Mm-hmm. So as you should probably finish talking about independence and all this, there's been suggestion that, that Yusuf's victory and actually the, the, the broader shift in the SNP means that independence is further away, independence is, is dead, some people are calling it. I just wondered how, how you saw that final question of independence. Well, I mean, the country is still divided down the middle on the subject. I mean, support has eased a bit, but it's eased back down from 49% to 47%. You know, there hasn't been any clear sign, for example, that the the prospect of a Labour government, majority Labour government, means that the enthusiasm for independence has declined. It's very, there there was no immediate decline in support for independence when Labour at first began to enjoy 20-point leads in the polls back in the autumn of last year. It's very difficult to believe that this issue is somehow going to disappear. It remains a fundamental fault line. Uh, We are now much more polarised on the subject than we were. And to that extent, at least, look, I think, you know, sure, the parties will, there will will be a debate about the agenda, but um, expect the SNP to continue talking about independence. And the truth is, one of the ironies of Scottish politics is that actually, in my experience, it is unionist politicians who want to talk even more about independence than do uh, the members of the SNP. They are constantly wanting to say to people, you don't want independence, you don't want a referendum, and peculiarly or not, when the opinion polls come back, they tend to give the lie to that argument. But that doesn't stop unionist politicians continually wanting to try to pursue that argument. Right, right. well, that's brilliant. We'll, um, we'll finish it there then, I suppose. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories in Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my guests, Ian Murray, Sir John Curtis and Stephen Gethins. Thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe to your podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at politicshome or email us via news at politicshome.com. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. The Rundown.